If you got your Bibles again, I hope you're in Genesis chapter 1 this morning. We're going to look starting out in verses 26 through, uh, through 27. Um, before, and, and before I get too deep in this, I just want to turn your attention to the fact that we are in the middle of a series called Brand New. It's going to be an eight-part, possibly maybe more, but at least an eight-part series where we deep dive the intricate details of the gospel story using some of the themes that come up in the gospel. The first half of this uh, series, we're focused on the gospel on the ground as, as, as it's uh, said in the explicit, uh, the explicit gospel by Matt Chandler. The gospel on the ground is more of an individual level approach to the gospel, an individual way of looking at the gospel. God, man, Christ response. We talked about God last week. This week we're talking about man. And I just want to fix your attention real quick on the complexity of man. We are capable of unbelievable good and simultaneously we are capable of unbelievable bad. As I watched the Olympics this week, I was, I've seen unbelievably good. I don't know if you've been watching it. But last night, I watched a group of women run the full length of a football field in under 10 seconds. I'm telling you, Brother George, it was fast. <laughs> fast. I watched, I, watched a, I watched a man swim 29 laps in an Olympic-sized pool the length basically of 15 football fields and still had enough energy to swim the last 50 meters of the race in 27 seconds. It was unreal. But I've also watched other things this week. I've watched men and women, both Christian and non-Christian, who have told me all of their, you know, for, for a number of years, the importance of supporting the police, which I encourage and I, I too agree with. I've seen them mock police this week because they didn't fall on the right side of a political wall. I've seen this week stories of men demanding women abort their children because they aren't ready to be fathers. I've seen this week and heard stories of, 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 of folks that have lost their sons to gun violence in our city. And I've heard their voice tremble and shake and quiver as they try to wrestle with that loss. In other words, I've seen a lot of good this week, but I've also seen a lot of bad that exists in our brokenness as people, as human beings. Man is truly complex because in one sense we are capable of unbelievable special th unbelievably special things and capable of so many great acts and exploits and yet at the same time we are capable of unbelievable sinful things and capable of really sad and broken acts. And today we want to peel back the layers on that complexity. We want to begin to understand that complexity and in so doing what I hope that we'll understand is why we desperately need a savior. As we think about Genesis 1, Genesis 1 is the story about how it started with man. It's a book about God, but it's a book about God creating, or it's a chapter about God, but it's a chapter also about God creating man. In fact, this, this section of the chapter is sort of the culminating section. It's the climax almost of, of the chapter in the sense of God is creating a lot of things, and then he comes to his crowning creation. The first thing we hear about man in the story of creation is that they were given the glorious distinction of being created in God's image and God's likeness. 
Verse 26 says, then God said, let us make man in our image and after our likeness and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. Both man and woman, he created in his glorious image. And what exactly should we take that to mean? It means that out of all the creatures that are roaming this earth, both past, present, and future, we are most like him. Now hear me carefully. I did not say that we are him, nor did I say that we are equal with him in any way. I said out of all of the creation, within the created order, within his created order, we are most like him. God possesses what, are known, what is known as communicable and incommunicable attributes. Communicable and incommunicable attributes. The incommunicable attributes are those that God alone possesses. His omniscience, knowing everything, for example. His omnipresence, being everywhere all the time. We will never have a point of reference for those attributes. We will never know what it feels like to know everything. We will never know what it feels like to be everywhere. Only God will. Those are incommunicable. However, God does also have communicable attributes. And being made in his image and likeness means we are able to carry those attributes in real and concrete ways. The late great theologian Louis Burkhoff separated those communicable attributes into three groups. The first group was intellectual attributes. That's knowledge and wisdom. We carry the ability to reason, to think, to make informed decisions in a way that no other created being is capable of. The next level for Burkhoff was moral attributes, those being attributes like goodness and love and grace and mercy and long-suffering, holiness and righteousness. We carry the ability to consider matters of morality and weigh them rightly. We carry the, the, a, a sense of righteousness. We know when things aren't right. We know when injustice is happening. We know the difference between right and between wrong. And then the last layer he gave us in terms of communicable attributes was volitional attributes. Those are attributes where, the, that where we exercise our will and we exercise our power like God. More, we're, we, are more, we are in more control of our actions than any other beings on the face of this earth. I mean, when you think about it, without man, there is no train. Without man, there are no skyscrapers, there is no internet, there is no Facebook or, or, or Twitter, which I'm not sure if that's a good thing or bad thing as I think about it. Without man, there is no 16 chapel, nor, there, nor is there a Marvel's Avengers without man, which is a very good thing. Without man, there is no Mozart's Requiem, there is, and, and, and without man, there is no Michael Jackson's Thriller. Without man, there is no sweet potato pie, neither is there a chicken sandwich war between every single restaurant in America. Without man, you don't have any of those things. All of this exists as a result of God creating us in his image and creating us in his likeness. Can you imagine a, a pack of dogs in a writer's room banging out the scripts for the Avengers movies? 
Can you imagine a, a clouder of cats, which is something I just learned, by the way, that groups of cats are called clouder. But can you imagine a clouder of cats in the kitchen whipping up a five-star, seven-course cuisine or meal? Of course not. That's what it means to be created in the image and likeness of God. That's what it means to be called mankind. Which leads me nicely to the second point, because we are created in his image, but we were also given a special mandate as those created in his image. Verse 28, God blessed them, and God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. As image bearers... Humanity was given the divine mandate. Humanity was designed even to rule and subdue the rest of creation. To be its caretakers, to tend to it, to plant, to water, and to reap that which is sown. To fill the earth with image bearers and to work and cultivate the earth in order to fill every corner of the earth with beauty and with fruitfulness and with goodness. And to do so with a smile on our faces and joy in our hearts. That's what we were created for. You see, all of this in, in, you, you see all of this in the second chapter of Genesis. When you look at the second chapter of Genesis, verse 15, Adam is placed in a garden to work it and keep it with a smile on his face and joy and worship in his heart. Verse 19, God brings all the animals to Adam for him to name them. In other words, he has dominion over all the created things to rule and reign with a smile on his face and joy and worship in his heart. God says it is not good that man should be alone. And in, and, in, and in verse 21, he creates a suitable partner to come alongside Adam and, 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 and establish order and establish beauty and establish fruitfulness and establish goodness in the world while developing community, intimacy, and connection with smiles on their faces and joy and worship in their hearts. You see, this was mankind's design. This was mankind's calling. This is what separates man from all the other creations in the world. And it's this that the psalmist has in mind. In Psalm 139, verse 13 and 14, when the psalmist declares, For you formed my inward parts. You knitted me together in my mother's womb. I praise you, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works. My soul knows it very well. This is what makes mankind, this is what makes us special. But here's the question for us this morning. What happened? What happened between Genesis 1, Genesis 2, and Genesis 3? I described how it started. Let's talk about how it's going now. As you look at Genesis 3, you hear in verse 1, Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God has made. He said to the woman, Did God actually say you shall not eat of any tree 
in the garden. And the woman said to the serpent, we may eat of the tree of the garden, uh, of fruit of the trees in the garden. Amen. Thank you, brother. Sweating up here like an old missionary Baptist preacher. Amen. Amen. Have to give me some handkerchiefs up here from here on out. It's hot outside, amen? But God said, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. Verse 4 says, but the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be open, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. What's amazing about this story to me is not just what they went after but what they left behind in order to go after what they went after. Remember what God has given them. God has given them a life free of suffering. God has given them a life free of pain. God has given them a life of dominion and a life of reign over all of his creation. God has given them a life filled with nothing but endless opportunities to create and cultivate beauty, fruitfulness, goodness, joy in the world for his worship and for his glory. They had everything but one thing. And I'm not even talking about the tree. Don't get lost with the tree. Because that's not the one thing that they didn't have. The tree represents the one thing that they didn't have. We can get lost in the details about the tree. People are arguing over what, is, what kind of fruit was on the tree. That is of no consequence. What's missing here, the one thing that they did not have in the tree is authority over God, is submission to God, is God bowing down to their will, is them self-governing and self-reigning and self-ruling outside and absent of God's hand. In other words, God gave them everything he possibly could give them, and yet there was one more thing they wanted, autonomy from him. They wanted to be their own God. You see it as, you see it as clear as day in verse 4, four through 6. The serpent said, you will not surely die, verse 4. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be open, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. You see, when Eve looks at the fruit on the tree, she says to herself, this is take, she, she looks and she says, this is good for food and that it was a, it was a delight to her eyes. Don't get, don't get it twisted. The reason it was a delight was not just simply because it was really, really tasty fruit. The reason that it was a delight, because in the fruit, Eve saw an opportunity to be God. The one thing that they didn't have, saints, the one thing they didn't need, saints, the one thing they could never attain, saints, was the one thing they chased. And that one thing cost them everything. I can't even begin to describe how this story plays out in the human story over and over and over and over and over again. Over and over and over and over again, this plays out in the human story. Give us everything and we'll still fight for the one thing that we don't have. 
Give us everything and we'll still fight for the ability to rule and reign as we see fit, to do our own thing, as we say. Give us everything and we'll still ask for the throne. Give us community, give us family, give us provision, give us the privilege to be loved, and we'll throw it away for a chance at the crown. We want to rule as our own God. As you survey your own life, can you find places that God has given you more than enough and yet you're willing to throw it away because you want the ability to do things your way or because you want the one thing that you feel like he owes you and you don't have yet? If you can't look at your life and see that, you're probably not looking hard enough because that is the human experience. Have you ever watched an infant in a room? Room can be full of toys. He can be totally unbothered with all the other toys. He's playing with dozens and dozens and dozens of toys in the room until another little snotty-nosed kid shows up. And in that room, that kid grabs a hold of one toy that that other kid hadn't been paying attention to the entire time he was in the room. What happens to that kid? That infant starts easing over, trying to plan his attack to steal that toy back. Never mind all the dozens of toys that I have, I want that one now. Have you ever watched a teenager, no matter how much rope you give that teenager, no matter how much you say, okay, what's curfew, all right, 10 o'clock, 11 o'clock, 12 o'clock, 1 o'clock. Umpteen o'clock. Man, you just so hard. You're not fair. I can't do anything. Just stretching and stretching and poking and prodding. But let's talk about us. Have you ever watched an adult? Maybe this adult is you with practically everything that you need, and yet you'll still step on somebody else to have, the, have that one more thing that you feel like you need. We can have good jobs, great jobs even. And yet, we'll lie, we'll cheat, we'll steal, we'll compromise to get what? To get the next job. We can have a great life, and yet we'll squander that great life in search of what? Another life. Even one that, that we can't see does not exist. You ever been that adult? I've been that adult. This is our inheritance from Adam. With literally, literally everything in our grip with literally everything in their grip, rather, they opened their hand. They had everything in their grip. They opened their hand, dropped everything so they could reach for that one thing that they did not have, autonomy from God, God's throne, the ability to be their own God. Watch what happens. Verse 7, then the eyes of both were open, and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. Can you imagine that sound, hearing that sound after eating that fruit? And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden. And I was afraid. Because I was naked and I hid myself. And he said, who told you that you were naked? 
Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? And the man said, the woman who you gave to be with me, she gave me fruit of the tree and I ate. Then the Lord God said to the woman, what is this that you have done? The woman said, the serpent deceived me and I ate. And the Lord God said to the serpent, because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all the beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go, dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman and between you and your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, you shall bruise his heel. And to the woman he said, I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be contrary to your husband, but he shall rule over you. And, and to Adam he said, because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground. For out of it you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. What happens because they had to be God? They immediately begin to die. They immediately begin to die. By the way, it was a death that God promised. In chapter 2, verse 17, he said, hey, if you eat of that tree, you're going to die. They probably ate of the tree in that moment and said, hey, we're still living. But the process of death began. See, upon first look, you may read it and you may say, well, they didn't actually die. But if you do, then you miss the very concept of death. Death is a reality that takes place over time. You see, death includes the entry of pain into the world. Death includes the entry of struggle into the world. Death includes the entry of suffering into the world. Death includes the entry of dying into the world. You know, my father had a saying that he started sharing with me in my early adult years and in his middle-age adult years, and it was this. Son, now I'm living every day and dying every day. It's a sober reality. It's uncomfortable for some of us to even hear those words. It's a truth that we don't want to hear, but it is a truth that is inescapable. Have you ever watched an NBA player that you like, an NFL player that you like? If you have, then you've witnessed what I'm talking about. Let's talk about Michael Jordan. Michael Jordan started his career as a player who was becoming the greatest basketball player that ever lived. And then there was a period of time, a window of time, where Michael Jordan was, in fact, and played as the greatest basketball player that ever lived. However, because of Adam's inheritance, Michael Jordan could never continue to play at that level of the greatest basketball player that ever Live. Of course, Michael Jordan is alive, but his body is slowly dying. And I'm not just, I'm not, I'm not hating on Jordan. If, you, if you're a Jordan fan, like, what are you talking about? I'm not hating on Jordan, right? That's, that's LeBron. That's, that's Peyton Manning. That's Tom Brady. That's some of you. That's me. We call it getting old, but it's just dying slowly. The increasing inability of our cellular and molecular structures to reproduce themselves. 
That's what's happening in our bodies. And it's part of the inheritance of death, the inheritance we receive from the first Adam. And why did we receive it? Because Adam and Eve sinned. The Bible says in Romans chapter 6, verse 23, for the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus. The wages of sin, the payout for sin, the hourly pay for sin is death. And not just the temporal, natural version of death, but the permanent, eternal, spiritual version of death. You see, when we make decisions to turn away from God to a sort of self-governance, we are choosing death. This is what Adam and Eve chose. And this is what we choose when we follow them. You see, two reasons why death is the result of our forsaking of God in Genesis. You see, two reasons. The first reason sin causes death is because sin earns God's wrath. Genesis 3 shows that. What happens in Genesis 3? They eat of the fruit. God told them not to eat of the fruit. And then God comes, right, into the garden. And he begins to pronounce what? Judgment. Judgment on Adam. Judgment on Eve. Judgment even on the serpent. And it is costly judgment. It is judgment that is going to wreck the entire created order. It is judgment that is going to lead to tsunamis throughout the centuries and and tornadoes throughout the centuries and hurricanes throughout the centuries. It's judgment that's going to lead to man against man, woman against woman, fighting each other and clawing uh, at each other and, 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 and shooting one another. It's judgment that's going to lead to violence in Vicksburg and violence in, in Jackson and violence all over our nation and our country. It's judgment that's going to lead to political divisions that, that, that we literally fight one another over. It's judgments that's going to lead to people rushing the Capitol and insurrections. It's judgment that's going to lead to all of that. When I was a kid, I um, remember going to the grocery store. I don't, I don't remember if I was with mom or with somebody else. I was going to the grocery store, and um, whoever I was with, vague memory, they paid for their goods, and they walked out. And uh, when they walked out, we were walking to the car, and I just whipped out this uh, piece of gum that I took while I was in the grocery store. They didn't know it, you know, I, I just grabbed it, put it in my pocket, walked to the car. Um, and they, they said, Brian, what are you doing? Can't take that. And so we went back into the grocery store and um, they paid for it, said they're sorry. And the cashier just smiled. It's, oh, it's okay. Such, he's so cute, you know. And I don't know if they said that. Like I said, it's vague memory. I'm just adding some stuff in there. But nevertheless, nevertheless, we walk out, all's good. I don't go to jail. I'm not in handcuffs. There's no shot of me on WJTV. You know, I just left. I walked out. Day's done with my gum. I was super young. The candy wasn't that much. I didn't stick anybody up. There was no armed robbery moment. And so the weight of the judgment was a reflection of the weight of the crime. Let me give you one more example. If, um, what do you think would happen if after service, when you 
you, you know, I'm walking out feeling pretty good. You know, we've had a great service. I'm feeling pretty good walking out to my truck. You're angry uh, because you didn't like my Michael, J Michael Jordan story. And, um, and you, you, you approach me, you know, fist up in the air like, man, you better, you better take that back about Jordan. He still is the greatest player. I'm like, I'm not taking it back, dude. I'm sorry. And then you punch me in the nose and you hit me a bunch of times and then you take my wallet and you run off, jump in your car and leave. What do you think will happen? You could be in some trouble, right? I mean, I'm, I'm going to call the police probably. You could be in some deep trouble. Let's change the equation slightly. What if instead of it's me, it's President Joe Biden that you do this to? What do you think will happen then? Probably going to be in a little bit more trouble. Why? Because it's not just the offense, but it's the person in which you've offended that determines the value of the judgment. The weight of the judgment is based on the weight of the person. Which brings me to the point of God pouring out wrath on all mankind. In order to understand the weight of judgment, you have to understand the weight of the crime. And in order to understand the weight of the crime, you have to understand the weight of the one whom the crime has been committed against. You see, if you rebel against me, a fallible man, a fallible sinner, maybe the punishment is not that significant. Maybe they give you a few days probation or, you know, you pay a fine and you get out of jail and that's no big deal. But if you commit that crime against a holy God, an infinitely wise God, an infinitely perfect God, control in control of all things, creator of all things, if you commit that crime against that God, the judgment is probably far more severe. In fact, God tells us that the judgment is far more severe because he says in Romans 1, chapter 18, because of the sin of this world, chapter 1, verse 18, for the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, for by their unrighteousness, uh, for by their unrighteousness, who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them, because God has shown it to them for his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world and the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchange the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man. The wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness. Judgment has come to the world because we have transgressed a perfect God. A God who is worthy of infinite praise, we have transgressed and giving him far, far too little. A God that is worthy of infinite worship, we have transgressed and given him far too little. In fact, we have sought to take his place. In fact, routinely, often, daily even in some instances, we go to this God and we say, I don't really think you know what you're doing. I'm going to do it this way because I don't think you know what you're doing here. I'm going to go my own way. I'm going to choose my own destiny. Why? Because I don't think you know what you're doing. 
And then you ask, why would sin lead to death? The question we must ask ourselves is, why would we ever think that it wouldn't? Here's another reason that sin leads to death, though. Not just because of wrath, but sin leads to death because sin causes separation. Sin causes separation. Adam and Eve faced judgment in the garden, but they faced judgment in a particular way for trying to embark on a life where God plays second fiddle to their, to their desires and passions and wants. And what was that? Well, he pronounces judgment on them. And then at the end of the chapter, chapter 3, the Bible says that, verse 24, he drove out the man. And at the east of the Garden of Eden, he placed the cherubim and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. He banished them from the garden. You see, they wanted to live a life free of God's oversight. And for that, they were given a life free of God's presence. Sin separates us from God. Isaiah chapter 59 verse 2 says, but your iniquities have made a separation between you and your God. And your sins have hidden his face from you so that he does not hear. See, we don't understand the significance of separation from God because we don't quite understand all the ways in which God is holding everything together in this sinful world. You hear separation and you say, okay, separation from God, so it means I don't get the warm and fuzzies when I pray. No, we don't understand what separation from God means because we don't understand everything he's holding together. Whatever true peace that you experience and know in this world is a product of God being present. Whatever true hope that you know in this world is a product of God being present. Whatever true love that you know in this world is a product of God being present. Whatever true beauty that you know in this world is a product of God being present. So what happens when he removes his hand? What happens when he removes his presence from the world? The same thing that happens when light leaves the room. Darkness. You don't have to create darkness. Light just has to leave. When light leaves, darkness comes. And so it is with God. When you talk about what separation ultimately does to a people, when God leaves the room, the standard for life has left or the source for life has left. There's nothing but death remaining. When God leaves the room, the source of light has left. There's nothing but darkness remaining. When God leaves the room, the source of love has left. There's nothing but hatred. When God leaves the room, the source of joy has left. There's nothing but sorrow. When God leaves the room, what do you call that? You call that hell. Hell is the full manifestation of God's wrath and the full manifestation of God's separation. See, part of the reason why we don't understand hell is because we don't understand the weight of God and we don't understand the absence of God. If you understood the weight of God and you understood the absence of God, hell is logical, very logical. 
I mean, if the source of love is gone, what, why should I expect love to be there? If the source of light is gone, why should I expect light to be there? If the source of hope is gone, why should I expect hope to be there? I shouldn't expect any of those things because he's not there. One theologian says, hell is an everlasting ruin, a decay, crumbling and retreating into yourself, a loss of all rationality and joy, a plunging into misery. But it is a self-plunging. It is a gnawing and an ache, but it is oriented inward, downward into the abyss. This is what he means. When you look at Romans and you look at the, cha- uh, the chapter that we just read about God's wrath being poured out on all mankind, here's another, here's another piece about that chapter that we see in Romans, uh, in Romans chapter 1, and it's this. If I can get to it real quick. All right, Romans chapter 1, it says this, verse 24, therefore God gave them up in the lust of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves because they exchanged the truth of God about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator. In other words, God, when God moves his hand, what's left is us feeding on ourselves. We're given over to the sin that we crave. And so if it's lust that you want, then it's lust that you're giving into and all of the destructive elements that come with that lust. If it's anger that you want, then it's anger that you're giving into and all the destructive elements that comes with that anger and so forth and so on. Jealousy, envy, backbiting, all of those things are what happens to us when God removes himself from the equation. And so, Adam and Eve, in searching for a garden in which they are autonomous and they rule and they reign, the only garden that exists like that is the one that is flaming and burning for eternity. There is no garden that exists where you can say, I can be here, God cannot be here, and I rule and reign as I see fit. That garden is hell. There is no other garden that exists. And so when we talk about sin, sin brings, sin creates death because sin brings the wrath of God because he's infinitely worthy. But when we talk about sin leading to death, also we have to understand that sin brings, the, brings, the, uh, brings death because sin separates us from God. This is the dilemma. This is the problem that you and I are faced with. In God, there is life. Outside of God, there is only death. In fact, when we talk about the story of hell, there's uh, in Luke chapter 16, there's a rich man and a poor man named Lazarus. The rich man had all good things in this life. He dies and ends up in hell because he didn't know, didn't know God. The poor man had nothing in this life, but he knew God and he ended up in heaven with God. And the rich man is having this conversation with the poor man. He says, I'm in agony here. Can you please give me just a drop of water to put on my tongue? And what does the poor man say? The poor man says, Lazarus says, There's a great chasm here between us. A great chasm. A great chasm. What does that mean? What is this chasm? What is this chasm that we're talking about? We're talking about separation from God. That's what hell is. Let me close with this. 
The Bible in Romans chapter 3, it says this. There is no fear of God before their eyes, verse 18. Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law so that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world may be held accountable to God. For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight since through the law comes knowledge of sin. This is what they're setting, this is what the author, this is what Paul is setting up in this text. He says that there, there, our sin is going to place us before a holy God in verse 19. And on that day that we are standing before him, there will be nowhere to run. There will be no excuses to be made. There will be no, well, I mean, you got to understand the way I grew up. Or you got to understand the people that did this to me. The only reason I did this was because of the way they did this. There will be no excuse that grants you and I pardon. That's the point of verse 19. Every mouth may be stopped and the whole world may be held accountable to God. For by the works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight. Sin has earned us judgment. Sin has earned us wrath. Sin has earned us separation. All bad news. Verse 21. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law. Although the law and the prophets bear witness to it, the righteousness of God through faith in Christ Jesus for all who believe. So what does that mean? That means that there is no excuse, but there has been made for you and I provision. But now the righteousness of God is manifested, not because of us, but because of Christ. And through Christ, although we are worthy of judgment, although we are worthy of wrath, although we are worthy of separation, because there was one who lived the perfect life, who came down from heaven and embodied and wrapped himself in human flesh, lived a perfect life, and died the death that we all deserved. Upon his shoulders was the wrath of God placed. And because that wrath was placed on his shoulders, you and I no longer have to bear it if we accept him by faith. If we embrace him and trust him with our lives. And we'll talk more about that on next week. Would you pray with me? God, we love you. And we thank you.